1: Malicious Google ads for Signal and Telegram are being used to lure the unwary into downloading an info-stealer. LV Ransomware looks like repurposed R-Evil. A study of the U.S. Defense Industrial Base finds that many smaller firms, particularly ones that specialize in research and development, are vulnerable to ransomware attacks. Rick Howard ponders how we categorize state-sponsored cybercrime. Our guest is Sudhir Kaneru from Zenoti on how data privacy impacts salons and spas. And it's high noon in the Black Sea. Do you know where your warships are? From the CyberWire Studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, June 22nd, 2021. eSentire reports finding spoofed Google ads for the Signal and Telegram messaging apps that induce visitors to download Redline Stealer, information-harvesting malware, whose take the criminals subsequently sell in various dark web markets. It's not just Signal and Telegram that are being faked to deliver malicious content. eSentire says others have seen similar activity, pretending to be AnyDesk or Dropbox. In this case, the threat actors use convincingly forged download pages for the apps. Users who attempt to get those apps during their visit will be socially engineered, as eSentire puts it, into downloading and initializing Redline Info Stealer. The hoods behind the scam are willing to invest. eSentire's report says, quote, The threat actors who launched these malicious campaigns would have had to spend money purchasing Google Ads. The cost of these ads depend on many variables, including the popularity of the keyword like Signal, Telegram, Viber, and the willingness of other advertisers to pay for that keyword in their ads. Although we do not know the total amount the cyber criminals spent on the Google ads, we do know that purchasing the keyword Telegram can run $0.40 per click, while the keyword Signal can cost up to $1.40 per click. It's possible that financing for these ad purchases were themselves sourced by Earnings from previous malicious campaigns, End quote. so evidently it pays to advertise. This is the third campaign Ecentire has recently tracked in which the threat actors are abusing Google search results. The two earlier efforts were called Gootloader and Solar Marker. SecureWorks has taken a look at the LV strain of ransomware that's in circulation. And they've concluded that LV is basically just warmed over R-Evil and not really a distinct strain at all. How LV came to share the same code structure as R-Evil isn't entirely clear. R-Evil's proprietors, whom SecureWorks calls Gold Southfield and who succeeded the Gand Crab operators at the time of that gang's retirement or dispersal or rebranding in the spring of 2019, may have sold it had it stolen or traded it with some criminal partner for other considerations. There's no immediate evidence that LV's operators are running their own affiliate program, but SecureWorks thinks it's possible that one is in the offing. The Colonial Pipeline and JBS ransomware incidents raised concerns about two critical infrastructure sectors, and recent reports have suggested that the water and wastewater sector has also come under attack more often than had been thought. This morning, Blue Voyant released a study of the U.S. Defense Industrial Base that concludes that this sector, too, exhibits significant vulnerabilities, particularly among its smaller companies. Half of the 300 small and medium businesses studied were found critically vulnerable to ransomware. 28% fell short of CMMC requirements. Should one of these firms be infected, there's the possibility of disruptions to those supply chains in which the company figures. There's also the possibility that the ransomware could be propagated from the initial victim to partners, prime contractors and subcontractors. The assumption the attackers seem likely to work from, the Washington Post writes, is that smaller firms are inherently less likely to be well-protected against cybercrime than are the bigger outfits in the defense sector. CISA's weekly vulnerability roundup lists 24 high-severity vulnerabilities. 23 of them this past week are android bugs. And finally, two NATO warships, the Dutch vessel Evertson and the Royal Navy's HMS Defender, operating in the Black Sea and visiting the Ukrainian port of Odessa, were falsely reported to have moved to disputed waters in the vicinity of the Russian-claimed port of Sevastopol. The USNI News reports that it seems automatic identification system signals were falsified to give the impression that the warships had engaged in what effectively would have been a provocation. In fact, both ships remained in Odessa. Whether the AIS reports were deliberately falsified and by whom, or whether the incident involved some malfunction, how the misreporting occurred remains unclear. Most commercial vessels are required to be equipped with AIS, which is a valuable aid to collision avoidance, among other things. Warships also typically carry AIS, although for security reasons they may turn it off as necessary since their locations are often sensitive. But navies, too, are interested in safe transit. In 2017, for example, following two deadly collisions between U.S. Navy warships and commercial vessels, The U.S. Navy told its ships to turn their AIS on in heavily trafficked waters. So there are several points in the electronic chain at which AIS positions for the two NATO warships in the Black Sea might have been faked. But it seems that both Evertson and Defender were in Odessa, where they belonged, and had every right to be. Again, how the locations came to be misreported remains, for now, unknown. Those of you landlubbers out there who may decide you're interested in looking at what ships are doing where, you can gratify your curiosity by consulting the AIS aggregation site, Marine Traffic, and all y'all mariners, well, stay safe out there, whether you're in the Gulf of Odessa, Manila Bay, or practically outside our own windows here on the Chesapeake. That's vanta.com slash cyber. Third-party risk is top of mind these days, thanks to incidents like the SolarWinds Orion breach. And it's worth considering the broad range of places in our lives where third-party data is stored and shared. Sudhir Kuneru is founder and CEO of Zenodi, a provider of cloud-based software for the beauty and wellness industry. They work with companies like Haircuttery and European Wax Center. Potentially intimate stuff and data
0: worth protecting. Some of the more uh, organized and larger-scale footprint businesses uh, do ask for more information around You know, their preferences in terms of color, skin care, uh, skin type. Some of them even take a photograph of the person's hair before and after, you know, depending on, uh, you know, well-established brands have these kinds of processes defined and they use all that. And then some of the businesses where they do, uh, you know, spa related services and all that there you do need them to you know sign a disclosure and you know sign a waiver kind of stuff which you know in the event of any challenges so most parts insist on a waiver uh, of sorts um, so yeah there's that's the i would say the spectrum of information
1: yeah, it strikes me too that there's sort of a an intimate relationship you have with the folks who are doing this sort of uh, these sorts of services for you. You know, particularly when we're talking about things like grooming, um, there could be details there, even just the services
0: rendered that you want to be kept private. Yes, absolutely, and you know, even what services a person took is a private information, and many of these uh, what we think of as salons and spas go beyond hair itself they do a lot of skincare treatments and then nowadays they are expanding into something called medispa which is like you know because it is a profitable segment which has involves you know whether it's botox or other kinds of uh, regimens uh, kind of thing so yeah they even disclosing who came and what service they took it would be a liability for them
1: and is it your sense that the folks who are running these sorts of organizations do do they have a, a good understanding of the
0: importance of protecting the privacy of this sort of information? I would say the well-run and established organizations definitely do, uh, especially if you are running a business which has more than five stores. I think they are, uh, you know, they understand the liability associated with it and are waking up to being very diligent about asking all the right questions and ensuring their software supports these capabilities. And uh, I would say some have even made changes to their software systems as these regulations are are getting more prominence in the industry kind of stuff to make sure their software supports it. But yeah, uh, I I do think the small players, I don't think even know or understand any of it. So many of them run their business on pen and paper or some old school software, which possibly is not even compliant from a regulatory perspective. Even for the smaller businesses, actually, the compliance is not very hard to achieve today. So, software solutions, whether it's ours or others, make it super easy for them when they deploy it to say, "Hey, the customer, the their guest should have the flexibility and control to choose. You know, will they opt in? Will they opt out?" And making sure the business doesn't do any mistake also of saying accidentally also our systems will not allow a business to go send off a marketing mailer to people when the guest has said no uh, and, and it protects the business quite well I, I think there's there's awareness pretty pretty strong in our industry as well and uh, i think many systems have matured to ensure they're protecting the business overall
1: that's sudir conero from Zenoti. And joining me once again is Rick Howard. He is the CyberWire's Chief Security Officer and also our Chief Analyst. Rick, always great to have you back. Thanks, Dave. So uh, your CSO Perspectives podcast just wrapped Season 5 last week. And I have to say, uh, it seems as though you've got some free time on your hands. (laughs) Because at our program meeting this week, you were mentioning a new trend in terms of nation-state hacking activity something that you call continuous low-level cyber conflict so that caught my eye or my ear as being uh, an expensive stringing together of words Um, so two questions for you first of all how does it feel to have some free time to get caught up but more importantly what is this new trend you're talking about
2: well, it's always good to get some uh, breathing room between deadlines and having time to get caught up in on the latest developments. And we were mm. getting ready for the CyberWire's quarterly analyst call, which, by the way, is at the end of the month. You don't want to miss any of that. And, and that's where we get two smart people and me into a room and discuss the three most impactful news stories from the past 90 days. So I'm going mm. through all these old news stories right from the uh, last quarter, and I notice a lot more state-sponsored actors we're dipping their toes into cybercrime in various ways. Now, I, I don't think it's,
1: it's new news that, you know, North Korea with the Lazarus Hacking Group, they've been conducting cybercrime operations to help fund their espionage operations.
2: Um, are you saying that we're getting beyond that, that the, the situation is evolving? Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, at, here at the CyberWire, we started calling the Lazarus Group's crime activity as the old APT side hustle, right? But <laughs> <laughs> And they originated the idea, but the Russians, with their internet research agency, did it to fund their influence operations in the 2016 U.S. presidential election. And the Chinese do it, too, for general purpose funding, like how APT41 does it. But that's just one way that nation-state hacking groups conduct cybercrime. A slightly different angle than the APT side hustle is the idea of using these very same groups to bring revenue into the country. Uh, In my free time here, I stumbled on a podcast made by the BBC. It's called The Lazarus Heist, and it's excellent. Uh, But they describe that North Korea is so poor as a country— that they use their hacking team to bring in revenue to support, you know, things they need to buy and maintain and things, right? And so mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm. very interesting. And then we have a completely another category, which I call state-sponsored organized crime, where the government tasks cyber adversary groups within their country with specific target sets, like how the Russian FSB co-opted the ransomware group EvilCore in order to cause chaos and fear in the West. And then, you know, finally, we have the one long-standing tradition that we all know about, okay, of state-tolerated crime, essentially looking the other way as long as cyber criminals are not attacking their own citizens. And mm-hmm. that was one of the things that President Biden and President Putin talked about during this week's summit.
1: Hmm. Wow. So, I guess when we talk about this changing cyber threat landscape, I mean, these are the kinds of things we're talking about.
2: Yeah. And it changes fast. It's always changing. That's what I like about it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, before I let you go, um, even though you concluded season five of your CSO Perspectives show, we are still publishing season one episodes over on the ad-supported side. And uh, what is on tap for this week?
2: Yeah, so most of the season one was me discussing my first principal strategies. And this week we're talking about something that the entire industry needs to go a lot faster on, and that is DevSecOps. So join in and figure out what we're talking about there.
1: All right, we will check it out. Rick Howard, thanks for joining us. Thank you, sir. And that's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com.
2: That's cyberwire.com slash survey to share your feedback now.